Welcome to the Numbers People podcast, where each week we're going to be speaking with some highly regarded senior finance professionals and career experts, looking into the ins and outs of what makes finance people and their teams great. The podcast is proudly sponsored by HPR Consulting, a leading executive finance recruitment firm. I'm your host, Richard Holmes. On today's show, we welcome Richard McIntosh. Richard is an experienced commercial director and recently promoted performance director for Osgrid, Australia's largest distributor of electricity, provided products and services. Richard is skilled in guiding senior executives through complex decision-making, driving transformation and delivering operational outcomes. He has deep experience in corporate finance, valuation and due diligence across energy and telecommunications industries. Richard, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, very well. Great to have you on the show. How have you been? Good, and sorry it's taken us so long to get to this point. I've put you off a couple of times, but uh, looking forward to a chat. I've known Richard for a while now, and I think his career is really interesting. Good for the listeners to have a chat about it and where you've got to in your journey. Do you want to tell us more? Sure, I'll give you the potted history. So we're here in Sydney, Australia. I'm obviously not from here. I grew up in the north of England, did all my university there. I'm actually an engineer. That's how I understand the world. Perceive myself as an engineer. <laughs> Asked my engineering colleagues that, they would tell you different. I did aerospace engineering. I did a master's degree. Decided I wanted to go and live in London, do something different. Decided that if I could do the hard maths of engineering, I could do the easy maths of accounting. So became an accountant. Went through that process and it wasn't for me. So but it served a purpose. You know, it's a good grounding. Um, but once I'd qualified, that was enough of that, thanks very much, and uh, <laughs> stepped out and moved, just still still within Deloitte at that point, uh, transaction services, mm-hmm. so more of the deals environment, and that was a bit more interesting for me, that's that we're a bit more forward, what does the future look like, what are we going to do with this business, and did that for a while, did that in London, and then moved up to Edinburgh, we then had GFC, so I kept my head down and kept on doing that for a while, we got to a point where my wife, my then wife, would like to go overseas for a while, where should we go, for my sins I can only speak English. So yeah. it was like Canada, America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. We're here, we've been to Australia a few times. There was an opportunity with Deloitte to move in. So we moved over, continued to do the transaction stuff for about 18 months. Really interesting, different environment, but, but very similar, right? The interesting thing I found about Sydney was the market here is more akin to the Edinburgh market than it is to the London market. London's a really big, international, dynamic place. And so Sydney on the surface of it. But actually, there's a lot of network here that is very, very close. But I came over here with a view that we were going to be on secondment. Within about three minutes of staying at my friend's house on Manly Beach, I was like, Manly Beach will stay a bit longer. This is quite nice. Yep. There's a beach outside the front door. So we decided that we would make it a permanent thing. Got residency and citizenship. We made Australians. Which is still weird. Yeah. My children are Australian. And yet, yeah, we've been here for a while. So once we can make those decisions to kind of stay here, it was like, what career-wise, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. I don't want to continue to be a big four. I don't want to be a part of a big four. So what next? And started looking for opportunities and something came up at Optus. I moved to Optus into their strategy team. I see it as going from being external advisor and consultant to what was kind of an internal consultancy role effectively. And that team very quickly changed over time because I was there to do M&A type stuff. But Optus as a business at that point wasn't doing a huge amount of M&A. We did some big deals. I mean, mm-hmm. myself, the HFC network, all these the customers on HFC network to the NBN. We bought a lot of spectrum. When you use your phone, your phone uses radio waves. You use a spectrum. You pay for licenses to own certain frequencies and you pay billions of dollars. And it's a really complicated process you go through to buy that. In doing that, I was very plugged into the, the network of the Optus business, mm-hmm. working very closely with all their, their engineers, but really got involved in, in that side of the business. 
found myself going, uh, what next? What next? I've been there for a couple of years. We've done a few interesting things. Opportunity opened up for the commercial director of the network. And then I got approached, and I said, it's interesting. Different. That's, that's back into sort of the, the day-to-day of finance, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's looking after month ends, looking after mm-hmm. budgets, forecasting. And that opportunity only came up because I'd been working with those guys. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't had a traditional finance path. I hadn't done the management accounting since being an auditor, right? So mm-hmm. a different path into that. But I then spent the next couple of years working with those guys, understanding the business and being the finance director for the network, not a business that I was in love with. And it got to a point where I was senior enough to go, mm, hang on, what do I actually want to be doing? I made a very conscious decision that I wanted to be in energy, part of a transition to net zero. That's a driver for me. Where's the opportunity? An opportunity to go with Osgrid. And Osgrid at that point had just been privatized. Mm-hmm. So they were rebuilding the finance team and they were looking to do something a bit different, taking it from a, an ex-government organization to something a bit more commercial, a bit more forward-looking. Mm-hmm. And it was very much a sideways move for me and a very consciously a sideways move. Yeah, moved across, still running the finance team of a big distributed network business, different stuff, obviously, mobile phones and electricity. The thing that was really different for me was moving into a, a regulated environment. Take the rules of accounting that you understand and you can put those in the bin and you figure out what actually happens. So that was a really interesting learning, getting up to speed with a completely different approach and different drivers for business. Why do we do stuff here? I've done that for the last three years. Got to a point again where I was like, I think I've gone through the learning process here, looking for the next challenge, next opportunity. I still want to be in the industry broadly and this business specifically. Recently, I moved into a role within our transformation team. What does that mean? Kind of two things, right? It means I'm helping us deliver what we say we're going to do, and I'm trying to help set the strategy to figure out what it is that we're going to do. That's great. Great listening to your story as well. And when you were at Deloitte, pivotal moment, you thought, right, that's it, I've got to leave. Good question. I think, had there not been a GFC, I think I would have left earlier. In, in all seriousness, yeah. I, I made a decision sort of in my mid-late 20s that I'd seen associated lifestyle. It's not for me. I'm more interested in being near the business. And the other thing that happened was, having worked in lots of businesses and delivered them what I thought was lots of good ideas, you know, buy this, sell that, and then go on, see you later. Mm-hmm. Never actually seen that through, never seen the results yeah. of that. I want to see what happens next. Yeah. That was the missing element for me. So... I knew I was keen to get out and get operational in some way, shape, or form. When the GFC happened, it was very much a case of got a good job. Did a bit more of the restructuring side of things Mm -hmm. at that point. You have to adapt as things evolve. If I'd been headstrong, just not, oh, I'm going to go and get a different job and move careers, move industries at that point in time, maybe not. And the opportunity obviously sounded pretty fortuitous and good opportunity for you. It was the right thing. It was that transition. So it was relatively seamless from that perspective. But you're still delivering. It was still project-based. It was still very much delivering stuff to the executive, ultimately to the board, which is what we were doing previously. So I had those skills. And listening to you, you come across like you're self-aware through your career. When you move to London, you move to Edinburgh. Is that a natural thing for you? Like, did you realize when the time was up at Deloitte and when the time was up at Optus, or was it more of... That's a good question. There's a few different drivers for me. It's not just career. The decision we made to leave London was, you know, we're not from here. We've done five years in London. I'd like to have a change of scene. You know, I love the city, but the city is killing me. A non-career-driven decision, but used Deloitte as a vehicle. I actually found myself working, ironically, in London probably more than I did when I was working. At yeah. <laughs> but that was a lifestyle decision. Yeah. And then other decisions really come about when the learning curve flattens. I'm really interested in mm. doing new stuff. I'm going to get excited about it. And when you find yourself going, mm. like, what am I doing today? Not really interested. Probably time to do something else. Time to be. 100% agree. I don't have the, you know, the 12 steps of success. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that planned in mind. Mm. It's very much a case of 
Am I doing something that I think is worthwhile? Am I learning something? Do I feel like whatever it is that I'm producing is of value? If, that, if the answer to those questions is yes, then carry on. If the answer to those questions becomes more no than yes, then time to do something else. In reflecting on your career, what advice would you give to people wanting to have a career like yours? The thing that I have always been conscious of, because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always tried to avoid closing doors. So not being an engineer, because when I left university, the engineer was the guy that came to fix the coke machine. Coming an accountant, but I saw it as a very generalist thing to do. It can be in every business needs. When I moved between roles, and I've, gradu- I've gradually realized what I wanted to do over time. It probably gradually narrowed my focus in terms of industry and specific skills. Mm-hmm. I was trying to keep my broader skill set as wide as possible. I've never been the world's best accountant. I've never been the world's best financial modeler. They're really hard skills. I can do all those things to a degree where you know, I'm competent and I can call bullshit and know when to ask for help from the people that do know what they're doing. But you've got that broad skill set, right? So you can, you can move between things and you can tie the pieces together. To come back to your question, what advice would you give to someone? The thing that you're trying to achieve for me is, yeah, you've got to have a foundation of those hard skills. That's good. But actually, the real value comes in the spaces in between. The numbers say this. The market's doing that. The strategies are going over this direction. Is, is that right? How do I align these things and then importantly convince the people that make the decisions what I'm telling them is, is of value is correct? It's learning how to tie stuff together and deliver messages and influence. That's really what you're trying to do. Getting a broad range of skills, not closing doors in the first mm. instance. You know, seeing lots of different people operate, seeing lots of different businesses operate, being the sponge that mm. sucks all that up, gradually builds a skill set. I don't actually know what I do, right? <laughs> that's that's the, the, yeah. the biggest mystery to me is when you ask questions, I, you know, what is it I actually do? What do I actually yeah. bring to the table? It's the ability to pull all the stuff together. Yeah. That's where mm. I add value. I think. And for you, Richie, it's about that challenge, isn't it? Mm. It's coming to work and being, being challenged and adding value. It's, the question of value is, is a really important one. And the question of how do you add that value and mm. you know, what are the things that you do to contribute to the company being better tomorrow than it was yesterday? It's a really intangible thing, mm. but you've got to believe that what you're doing is contributing to that ongoing success. Throughout this podcast, a lot of the guests have talked about what you touched on, Richard, about not specializing too early in your career, being broad in your approach. Mm. Have you had friends who did specialize and are still kind of stuck in that space? Yes, I've got friends that have specialized and been very successful. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. So, so yeah. you know, if, you're really, if you're really passionate about something mm. and you're really good at it, brilliant, well done, you'll be yeah. successful. If you're not quite sure, and more importantly, if you're not passionate mm-hmm. and you specialise early, it can be quite hard to get out of that specialisation. Yeah. And you have to start making decisions about, I'm going to either have to take a backward step or certainly a few sideways steps. Mm-hmm. That becomes difficult. So it's, if you know what you want, great. I think it's really hard in your early mm. 20s to know what you want when you're 40 or 50. Some people get lucky and they figure it out. I think it's better to have more strings to your bow and to be able to then go, okay, I've tried these different things. I like doing that. I like that less. And gradually find a way through a career that gives you more of the things you like and fewer of the things you don't like. And don't get me wrong, there's no career out there that is just the things you like. There's always some crappy stuff. That's fun. As long as the balance is all right. As long as you're doing some of the good stuff. Yeah. So that's the thing in my position, Rich, in recruitment, I ask people, what's the ultimate goal? Where do you see yourself in five, ten years? And a lot of people I meet say, I don't know. They've not really thought about it, which on reflection, it's not, it's not a bad thing, as long as you're broadening your approach. Very simple approach of, yeah. if I do my job today to the best of my ability, and I keep my eyes open, good stuff will happen. Yeah. As long as you're adding value, you're building your network, and by that I don't mean doing unnecessary hard work networking for the mm-hmm. sake of it. You've got to deliver stuff for people to build a network. 
So as long as you're doing those things, you're constantly delivering value, you're enthusiastic about it, because that comes across as well. Customers, yeah. And you're building those relationships. And one thing I'd add to that is picking the right things to do. There is more work to do in most people's roles. Mm-hmm. There is more work to do than there is time to do it. So you've got to pick what you're going to do. And so you've got to go, that thing over there, I'm going to communicate, tell people I'm not going to do it. And this is something I've got better at over time. Figure out for you or for the business, or your team, what the lower value stuff is and make sure you get good at deprioritizing. If you just do everything yeah. and you treat everything equally that comes on your desk, and yeah, you might get lucky and do good stuff, but yeah. you might just get drowned in the crack. It becomes hard to distinguish yourself and then it becomes hard to go, oh, I've spent two or three or four years in that role and now I'd like to do something else. But you've just been operating in a way that no one's really noticed, even mm-hmm. though you've probably been doing good stuff and it's been hard work. There's a real risk of, yeah, but you didn't do that standout thing for the person that's going to give you your next role. So it's important to focus on those things as well. Like really, yeah. really have a think about how am I being perceived? Mm. You know, think about your network in the business and who's seeing what I'm doing. And you have to be a little bit selfish from that perspective. That's great advice. I think that perception counts for everything, doesn't it? I'm sure we've all worked in teams where someone's been promoted and you thought, well, I'm better than that person. Mm. Why did they get that promotion? Probably because of a great piece of work they did for a stakeholder. And we get recognized for it. And it can be relatively small yeah. stuff, right? It doesn't have to be huge three, six month projects. It's about attitude, how you approach things, and therefore how you are perceived by others. And you've got to manage up well. Like a lot of people manage down and manage their teams and yeah. lead their teams well. But I think that consideration for managing up I'm just actually, is, is crucial. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes, managing your team is critically important to deliver stuff. Absolutely. The person that's going to give you your next job is more likely to be above you than below you. Right. So it's equally important yeah. to manage those peers and those above you. Ultimately, when you go looking for a new role, you want to be in a position to have the conversation to say, oh, I'd like to go and do X, Y, Z, and to have backers. Richard's a good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should give him a shot at that. It's that self-awareness, isn't it? So working in, you know, in this, this new role, you're working in the, an industry of love. What, what are you most curious about? What am I most curious? I guess there's lots to go at in your yeah, industry. Isn't there? There's a huge amount. The engineer in me is curious about how we solve the problem. That's at the heart of why I'm here and what I'm interested in. There's a massive challenge to go carbon neutral as a society. The engineering challenge in doing that, when you turn off all the coal generators and put solar panels in, 25% of the problem. You know, we've all got to start driving electric cars. We've all got to, we've got to charge those electric cars from the solar panels and the wind farms. We've got to change the way we do agriculture. For me, that's you know, the engineering yeah. interest. But then there's a big commercial bit around that. How do we actually achieve that? We've got to make some decisions that in the short term, are going to be politically unpopular, are going to be financially questionable because we don't know what the future looks like. And so the funding decisions are really hard. That's about the finance and the accounting side of things. How do we, as a society, as a country, as a globe, solve some of those things where we're going to invest in stuff that we have to put some big bets? Bring that back to my little world and and Osgrid. Osgrid is trying to reshape itself and go from being unidirectional power generated at one end of the grid and goes to your house at the other end of the grid simple stuff to a much more complex much more meshed and integrated solar panels they want to send the solar from their house back to the grid to batteries people are plugging in their cars and places you have this big complicated mesh of connection points with two-way energy flows we've got to figure out well where do we operate in that how does osgrid continue to be viable continue to support its customers Mm continue to keep prices where they make sense for people because if people increasingly have solar panels on their roof, batteries in their garage, electric cars, and they're going, this wire hanging out in front of the house is costing me a lot of money. I'm not sure I need it. And so people cut that wire. Cost for Osprey doesn't really change. So mm. people who can't afford to have the solar panels and the batteries and mm. the cars pay more. There's a really bad scenario, right? So again, to bring it back to what are we trying to do? 
we're trying to make sure that sign doesn't lay out and that actually everyone gets value from this huge network that we have all, as taxpayers, invested in, yep. makes it work for everyone and makes it mm. you know, least cost yep. to achieve the right outcomes. It's an interesting problem to solve. That yep. problem is big engineering challenge. That mm. engineering challenge comes with a lot of commercial and financing challenges. Everything you do and everything you touch has an influence on how we solve that problem. I can imagine as well, when you compare countries like Australia to, say, countries in Europe that are doing that nearly 100% renewable and Reflecting on your career, what's the one thing you would have wished to have known in the start of your career, which would have helped you? The point I touched on earlier around hard skills and soft skills, if someone could have explained to me, made me believe more importantly, that that's actually where the value is, the soft skills Mm -hmm. and the ability to work in between the known stuff. Here's my spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. It's got numbers in it. It's very definitive. You know, look, I have an answer. Good. Well done. That isn't the answer. We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. That's an input into the decision-making process which provides you the answer. Mm -hmm. The actual real skill lies in the interpretation of the various data points, both known and you know, less quantifiable, and being able to read the people. And where is the CEO's head at? Where is the board's head at? Well, actually, our shareholders are also pension funds, so they've got a certain agenda. So you've got to know all of those things and be able to put those things together. Having someone explain that to me earlier would have avoided me falling on my own feet. Yeah, trying to figure out myself. But then again, I'm not sure if someone just telling you that allows you to actually know to that. I think you have to fall over your own feet to an extent. That's a key thing. Just even in Sydney, just the last few years, we are seeing these finance business partnering courses. Just in the last few years, it should change, but I think a lot of finance people coming through, they've got to have that mm. soft skill. It's about the storytelling. And if you don't have that, you're going to struggle with it. It, it absolutely is. And if you can't do the storytelling and you can't do the business partnering, you're going to run out of jobs. I'd agree because with that, yeah. All of the, I use the term advisory, all of the easy stuff is going to get more and more automated. We're getting better at storing data. We're getting, getting better at structuring data. Yep. Once you can do those two things, all of your accounting transactional type stuff gets automated, basically. There's a whole raft of jobs that go away. And you're left with a finance team, from my perspective, does what I keep you on about. The stuff around the edges. Right? Mm-hmm. Does the, the real value add? How do I take that data, which is now all neatly arranged for me, yep. to derive the so what? What do I do now as a result of knowing this? How do I join all these dots? And mm-hmm. that, to me is what finance should be. Yep. That's what I've always mm. strived to make my career and my teams. Just get the data organized mm. and then do the interesting stuff, value-add stuff. Because finance sits, I think, in a really unique part of any organization where done properly, you're really close to the business mm-hmm. and you understand the business like no one apart from the individuals working in that business unit. That's great. But you also understand where the execs heads at, where the board's heads at, because you're reporting so you're seeing the detail and the operational stuff, and you're seeing, this is what we're telling the board, this is how they're reacting to that. Therefore, what do we do differently? What do we tell the board differently to guide them to the answers that we want them to get to? And how do we bring business on that journey? How do we get the data out of business? There aren't many other teams that sit in that unique position, which I think makes finance a really interesting mm. space to work in. It's no longer a world of bean counters and debits and credits, and, yeah. that, that, and increasingly less. Back to my original point, that stuff is going away. Yeah. In the next decade, that stuff goes away. If you're not adding value and figuring out all this, yeah. how to join the dots, mm-hmm. there's not really going to be many places left in finance to hide. The evolution of finance just in the last 15 years has been huge from a kind of archaic, stereotypical finance team. I remember doing audits when I first started. Some of them for smaller clients were literally, here's a pile of paper, invoices, receipts, and everything else. 
go create some accounts. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, well, it's just going to be a fun afternoon. I can imagine you work with some good people throughout your career. Is, is any anyone influenced you the most? I can't think of an individual, but I've got lots of individuals in my mind when you ask me that question. And positive and negative, right? So yeah. I see... If I go back to my Deloitte days in the UK, always the cleverest person in the room, regardless of which room she was in, at the cost of her family life. And you know, she was so she was so focused on work. I was like, mm, brilliant at the job. The things outside of work aren't great. So that, that, that had an influence on me. Yeah. It made me think there's a balance there somewhere. And I had a, a mentor since I've been in Australia. Really, really good guy, really interesting guy, but really organised and disciplined in terms of taking notes, in terms of structuring what are my priorities today, this week, this month the next 100 days, and just doing that religiously. It's really easy to get lost in, oh, my inbox is full of stuff, and million different things to do. He was really good at going, no, no, write down the three things you're going to do today, things you're going to do this week, drill that in yourself and your team. You know, and if something comes in that's urgent, you've got to go to your list and go, right, what am I taking out? What am I not doing today and pushing to tomorrow or the next week? Otherwise, nothing gets done. So the whole do less better, actually start and finish stuff take whatever lessons you get out of that process into the next thing you do and so on and so on and so on. Don't just start 100 things and finish three. And again, the CFO here at Oswald, a really interesting guy, a really good guy, the discipline got notes every meeting he's pretty much ever had. And you'll know the names of their kids. You'll know, you know the, last, the last thing they spoke about. It's just those small things that yeah. allow him to build that network and just be mm. really good at what he does. And it sounds so simple. It is, but it's discipline. Just break it down. Discipline. And that's the key to it, isn't it? Because it's so easy to get distracted. Your oh. inbox full of 20, 30 emails. Yeah. I've heard that quite a lot. I've tried to practice it myself. Keep going back to it. It's the way to get things yeah. done. And knowing what you know now, what would you say to your younger self? Don't worry so much. Partly because of the environment I was in and being a big four. I probably worked harder than was necessary in the first 10, 15 years of my career. Do you, do you honestly believe that? No, no, no. You know, when you reflect, do you think? Genuinely, yeah. I still work hard, and it's important to work hard. I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value in, in yeah. hard work. and Just being in the office till 10 o'clock, yeah. because that's what you do, it's not very helpful. That's not the best version of you turning up at work every day. That's not mm. driving value. So doing that early in your career, because you think that's important, because you think you'll be seen to be working hard, and also trying to cover for the fact that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, yeah. so if I work harder, yeah. I'll make up for the gaps. Yeah. And there's no bit of that being true, yeah. so sometimes you have to, you know, just to keep up, not every day, not every week. Thankfully, I think that culture's changing. It's a generational change as well. The nature of my job, I hear it a lot where the only lead once the boss leaves. Mm. When you think about it, it's just crazy, isn't it? Like, work till eight, nine o'clock when you're not really got much to do. COVID's actually been a catalyst for right? just, just really solidifying that in everyone's life to yeah. go, actually, you need to go drop the kids off, pick them up at three in the afternoon mm. or go to soccer yeah. practice or whatever it is. Do it. Mm. If you need to go and do some emails at nine o'clock at night, let's focus on what are we trying to achieve yeah. as a team and make sure we deliver that. And then work becomes a much more yeah. fluid thing, which some people like, some people don't so much because they yeah. think that work never goes away, but I think it's worked really well. It's about productivity as opposed to being at your desk at 8.30. I think it's going to be challenging how companies manage it. This is very much an individual thing. It is. It is um, an individual thing. And it's going to be interesting how you build and maintain culture. The yeah. junior guys bump into the CFO in the corridor. Hey, Michael, how are you going? And the other chat. That interaction disappears completely when you're not in the office. Mm. And you go, oh, it's not very important. Over the course of mm. 10 years, it is it Because lots of those little interactions turn into you know, relationships, yeah. turn into getting asked to do things that become the piece of work that stands out, that gets you the tap on the there's definitely a balance of people having the flexibility to lead their lives and yeah. look after the kids and hobbies, whatever else they're doing. Mm. There is a need, I yeah. think, to be mm. together and have FaceTime. 
It's, it's collaboration, isn't it? Those corridor conversations, yeah. like you said. I've known you for a while, Richard. You, you come across as a pretty chilled out, calm kind of guy. <laughs> I mean, when you do get overwhelmed or, or the pressure's on, what do you do? Go outside. Go outside. Go for a walk. Ride a bike. Recognise that you are small and so are your problems. <laughs> in all seriousness, getting outside and you know, breathing some fresh air and getting away from the desk or the computer. Or... The other day, I was, I was working from home and I'd been sat on my backside all morning. I thought, right, I'll go for a walk. And I made eight phone calls and I went, went for a two-hour walk. I was just walking and I was so productive. And I just thought to myself, gee, that's me going for a walk yeah. kind of thing. But it's going to be interesting how, how companies adapt. It's exciting though, isn't it? I think COVID's kicked us ahead, a decade ahead in terms of working. So you're going from being sat on your desk to walking and just the process of actually being moving and mm. gets, gets you thinking yeah. and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I'm going to make these calls. You're focused on the activity of walking, mm. talking at the same time. And it's just, I think it's really important. Whatever situation you're in, if you get stuck, you're going to do something different. Five minutes for an hour, don't sit there and bang your head off the desk. Mm. It just gets worse. It's not going to help. No, I completely agree. Just getting out and about makes such a difference in mindset. To close out, Richard, if you had one message to tell the world, what would it be? Relax. Relax. It's going to be all right. Come back to it tomorrow. I think, you know, in all seriousness, the conversation we're just having, take a step away from it. If yeah. things are hard, take a step away from it and yeah. come back to it this afternoon, tomorrow, next week. Yeah, it's about not worrying and relaxing. It's not life or death. Yeah, correct. We're not, if you're an accountant, you're not saving babies. Yeah, <laughs> so very true. Keep some yeah. perspective. No, that's, uh, that's, that's great advice. But I think, I think you've been a great guest, Richard. I mean, very insightful, lots of wisdom and some, and some great advice. And I think uh, you've been a great guest and hopefully we'll have you on the show in the, in the near future. Mm-hmm.